Welcome to the Startup Competitors Podcast, where we talk with early stage entrepreneurs and to understand what information they use to inform product roadmap, strategy, and market differentiation. Want regular updates on moves your competitors are making? You can learn more at startupcompetitors.com. Hey there. Today I'm chatting with Thaddeus Rex, who's the founder and CEO of iTeam. iTeam is a group of CEO think tanks that bring CEOs together to allow them to focus on their business better. Thaddeus is going to spend a lot of time talking about what that means. You can learn more at thinkiteam.com and you can catch Thaddeus on LinkedIn. If you're looking for Thaddeus, it's T-H-A-D-D-E-U-S and his last name is Rex, R-E-X. Really enjoyed this episode with Thaddeus. He's an awesome guy to talk to. He has a great voice for podcasting, super insightful. Every time I get to sit down with him, I learn something new. I really think you'll enjoy this episode. And thank you so much for listening. This episode is sponsored by Product Light. Are you growing weary of Zoom and Teams meetings? Product Light gets you the data you need for product decisions with less meetings. Get clear and actionable insights from stakeholders and customers to help keep your product on the right track. Visit productlight.com slash less meetings for a free trial. Welcome to the podcast. Today, we're chatting with Thaddeus Rex, who's the founder and CEO of iTeam. Thaddeus, welcome. Thanks. Great to be here. Why don't we start with a quick pitch for what iTeam is? Sure. iTeam is a network of CEO think tanks. We bring CEOs together to help each other in small group think tanks. And then over the time as it's grown, it also has become a network of CEOs who are kind of dedicated to helping each other out, become better stewards of the community, grow your business, and uh, take on the world. And for somebody who may not have been in a think tank or a mastermind before, why don't you unpack what happens at an iTeam meeting? The key of an iTeam meeting is the other participants. And we always look at creating a fantastic environment where every CEO is able to contribute, but also learn. And I think that's really critical. They have that old saying, yeah. the five people you hang out with most is who you become. And I would also say, if you're going to do that, you need to make sure you're able to contribute to those five people so you get to stay in the group. And then structure format-wise, what's happening in those meetings? Great food. <laughs> we always start with food, right? Great coffee, great food. But in the meeting, part of the key is to understand in each CEO, obviously, we tend to know each other very well. And so there'll be a lot of follow-up. Hey, how'd this go? How'd that project, you know, that trouble employee you had or the negotiation you were working through, you know, just kind of catching up with each other. But then there's also making sure we get into what are the current issues right now? If the negotiation went really well, what are the next hurdles? If it didn't go well, can you save it? What's the next step? And sometimes some of the best advice is to cut bait and move on. Where did iTeam come from? When I started iTeam, it was kind of inspired by three different experiences I had. I was in college. Toward the end of my college career, I was very jealous of a friend I met who, A, he was a Rhodes Scholar and way smarter than me, lived in the honors dorm his freshman year in college. We didn't really become good friends to our senior year. On his dorm floor had this group of buddies, and they had made a pact that throughout life, they were going to help each other out. Now, we were just seniors in college, and you're like, oh, that's a cool thing, right? but you don't really think it's going to do anything. Then I watched them for the next 15 years doing it. 
I watched them help each other get jobs. I watched them help each other shift careers. My own friend, he got a double master's in English lit and philosophy and wound up becoming a computer programmer and working for a huge corporation, building data infrastructure, a data architect, I think you would call it. And, but he was in the very early days. So I don't think they knew what to call it yet, but it was those buddies who got him into coding where he got him up to speed enough that he was able to teach himself. And then in return, he helped them get better jobs at better companies. Some of them were helped start businesses. Uh, as a matter of fact, most of them run businesses now kind of because of that pact. That really stuck with me and this group of people who have your back. And that was a key component of building iTeam is finding people who have that mentality that they want to help each other. And I think that's really critical. So it's a group you can trust and know they have your back and they're going to help you move forward. And you in return want to help them move forward. Second experience I had was in the arts. I was a professional touring musician for 10 years. And as a musician, it's a great job in a lot of ways. It's very fun, but it's also very isolating. And if you don't proactively build a social network, it's extremely lonely because when you are in a room, you tend to be the center of attention. You're the one, it's your responsibility to show that room, you know, to get up on stage and show people the time of their life. So when you walk in, you don't just walk in and chill out. Like you're in character the entire time. You're pretending to be the persona you're creating on stage the entire time you're out on the road. And if you're not doing that, you're alone or in a van or truck driving to the next place. And if you're not alone doing that, if you have people with you, there are three people you've just spent the last 92 days with <laughs> sleeping in the same hotel rooms and living in the same van and you have emotional barriers. You, you're, you're still alone, right? right? It's not like you're uh, having great friendly conversations at that point. So it's a very isolating job. And what I learned though, when I went to like music festivals in the summer and there were a lot of performing arts centers that would do like conference type things, we'd have multiple artists in and you would meet the other artists backstage and it would be like instant rapport because they went through, had the same experiences you did. They were going through that same weird feeling of like, like, okay, I'm about to go on stage in 10 minutes and in the first 90 seconds, I'm going to win the entire audience over or I'm going to flop and I have to stand in front of them for two hours with people who don't really know why they're there and there's nothing worse in the world. And that pressure of making it work and that they all paid to be there and you got to show them the time of their life and doing it over and over again and to be with other people who understood what that's like and all the work you put into it behind the scenes to make it look easy while you're on stage there was like instant rapport. You just understood each other in a way that college buddies didn't understand me. My spouse couldn't understand me, but they did. And they became instant tight friends. And some of those people I've only seen two or three times in person, but we've spent hours on the phone together. I mean, days, if you add it up, because we're all driving all the time, we're just catching up. And it became a really tight, like a tribe. And when I left the music business, I just missed that tremendously. And that was another thing I wanted to recreate. I noticed CEOs, when I got into uh, consulting, that CEOs go through the exact same situation where they tend to have to be in persona. They have to be in character. They have to be really careful what they say all the time. And most people don't really understand all the decisions that they have to make and what they're dealing with. And so being able to find a tribe where you can share that and help each other work through it was really, that was probably the biggest piece of inspiration I got. And the third thing was being in Rotary and this idea that you join a service club, which is kind of like joining a country club, but instead of playing golf, you're doing service projects. And in the service projects, you're meeting and networking and finding ways to grow and build yourself individually and the business back to that. You are the sum of the five people you hang out with. And I think there was a time where most towns like Rotary Club was like, if you wanted to become a mover and shaker, that's where they were. It's not maybe that way so much anymore, but it was once. And the club I was in was that way very much. And I learned a lot about that service component and how 
critical that is. And so I team, we kind of turn it around where it's business growth first, but a huge point of growing your business is to be a better steward of the community to help your team members realize their dreams and everything there is to that. And I think it's a tremendous responsibility. It's really important for us as CEOs to have a way to hold each other accountable to like, what are we doing to make the community better as we build our businesses? Hit us with some current stats for the business. This can be any sort of vanity metric you want to share. It could be the size of the team, number of CEOs, number of groups, anything to kind of paint a picture of where you're at. We have been launching several think tanks this fall. Up until just a few weeks ago, we were central Indiana only. We just launched our first out-of-state think tank. This is the only one we've ever done that's industry specific, but they're all healthcare startups and healthcare is a very unique beast. And we actually talked to some of our clients who are running SaaS and tech companies, and they're just so very different in the regulations, the lingo, what they have to deal with to build, whether it's the software, we have some who are artificial intelligence software, others that are uh, building like really cool video informationals, and then others that are just device and biotech, but they all get each other. So other stats, we just filed our first provisional patent application. So patents, we have one. (laughs) Uh, But I feel like that's a really significant one. We're very excited about it. It takes 12 months after we file to become public. So you guys all get to see it soon. And then where's it going? Paint a picture for you look at this business five, six years from now. What do you want it to look like? It's grown over time. And I really thought about this a lot two years ago. I was approached by an investor who wanted to help build iTeam. And it was a really crucial question. Like, do I want to take, and I think a question a lot of your listeners might deal with, do I want to take investment dollars? Because with that comes a big responsibility that it's no longer, it can't be a lifestyle business. I can't run a business to give myself the lifestyle I want. I mean, ideally I want that, but I also now have a responsibility to build the business. To get a return to build a return. Exactly. So that investor is expecting a return. And he also invested right before COVID. So we've been like climbing the avalanche. Um, (laughs) But we did double in size in 2020, despite COVID. So that was fantastic. And growth is looking very good. We'll be come back at the end of 2021. But I think we will be close to doubling in size again. But the investor is looking at like he wants 5x. So 100% growth is great, but nowhere near our goal. And COVID definitely kept us from that. So it creates a tremendous pressure, which I I enjoy, but it is a pressure that you really want to commit to. If you take those investment dollars and bring in help. And I chose an investor who didn't just offer money, but also advice, expertise, network to help really advise me and brought some pieces to the table that weren't my skill set, which has really helped us build scalable processes. So now we're training facilitators and building think tanks. And I'm I'm really stepping back to be on the business as opposed to in the business, but it's very different to run a hospital versus be a physician. Totally different experience. Two things you said there that are kind of interesting when you think about growth. One is I'm not stunned that you doubled during a pandemic year. To me, that feels like a natural thing. If I'm a CEO and I'm alone and I'm now literally dealing with something unprecedented, I need somebody to talk to. And there's no right answer. There's no wrong. Well, probably are some wrong answers, but there's no right answer in what to do, you know, a year ago if you were running a company. So that makes a lot of sense. But then the other thing that I was thinking about while you're talking is you have a natural network effect in what you're doing, which is the bigger the community grows, the more that community without you having to take action is going to invite other people into it. So if I'm in a group that I'm truly enjoying and I have another friend who's a CEO of another company, I'm going to approach that person and be like, hey, man, you should get some of this too. So the bigger it gets, you would think there would be a natural network effect of 
you know, it's starting to spiral out into the communities that you get more involved in. Absolutely. And honestly, we are one of those double-sided businesses like Uber. You have no product if you have no drivers. As a CEO network, we have no product if we don't have CEOs. So the more CEOs we have, the better the product becomes as well. And it enables us to make much more valuable connections because if I can take a CEO XYZ and when they join and realize what they're dealing with, and if I have 120 different CEOs to consider, who do I connect them to to get help? That's much better than which of these 20 CEOs do I connect them to, right? It just exponentially increases the knowledge base. How do you think about controlling for the quality of the experience? The quality of your product and your customer's experience, I think, is the most important part of business. Beyond financial, and I mean, there's a lot of most important parts of business, right? right? As we go through this, there'll be probably 12. That's the most important part of your business. I think that's one of the aspects of CEO mindset that's very different. I had a mentor and this was many years ago, but he was a very successful, ran the largest nonprofit in Indiana or one of the largest nonprofits in Indiana for many years. And I asked him like, what's it take to be a CEO? And he was a consultant at the time who helped large nonprofits all around the country hire their next CEO. And he would be the interim CEO. And I was like, what do you look for? He said, number one thing is comfort with ambiguity. And I think as a CEO, you have to realize that there are 12 most important things to be doing right now. And you still have to prioritize, even though all 12 are most important. And I think the critical part is, A, placing CEOs into think tanks where they are able to give and take. And that is probably the most important component. And it's something we look at every single time. There's several things we look at. Obviously, we want people with strong self-awareness. They have to have a CEO mindset. We don't want to teach people how to be better people. It's how do you build a better business? And if you haven't already done that self-work, you're probably going to struggle. How do you assess that? So how do you know if I've done the self-work to know if I'm going to be focused on myself or if I'm going to be focused on the business? I wish there were a questionnaire or something that was really easy <laughs> to do that, but it honestly is a conversation. And I think just like when you're out there networking and you're trying to choose who might be a good referral partner, who do I trust, who really has a decent head on their shoulders, you're looking for people who aren't me, me, me all the time. And we all know those people in our lives who appear to be great, but then when you get into a partnership or just referral partnership, or even you just buy them drinks a couple of times and realize, wow, they always let me pick up the check and they always let me give all the advice. And now they have new clients because of me. And what am I really getting out of this? And I think that's really critical to pay attention to and to find ways to notice that earlier. And a lot of it is in the initial conversation, what do they talk about? How much they talk about themselves? Do they give credit to other people about their own successes? And then in the follow-up, you'll tend to get follow-up if you grab coffee with someone and it's the follow-up, hey, you said you were going to do this and this and this, and I can't wait. Thanks, man. I really appreciate it. Where's the next part where they were going to help you also? And you'll see that missing sometimes. And if you see that missing, I typically, after the second meeting, I cut bait. So if it's a conversation that feels difficult to scale, paint a picture to where you're now regional, you've got think tanks in seven states, you've got a bunch of facilitators. How do you keep that same level of quality that you can do intuitively, maybe, because there isn't a checklist, and scale that across a larger pool of people where you can't possibly be the one grabbing coffee with them? I think in every business, to be a really strong business, you have to have the kingdom that builds and leads an entire team. And you also have to have the wizard who can go solve complex problems. In personality pro, I'm the wizard type, which comes with a lot of weaknesses. Like I'm not great 
at building consistent processes. I'm not great at even being consistent. Or if I tell my assistant to do something, I might even forget I the next day ask her again because I forgot I told her already. I don't have that consistent process-oriented mindset. It's a big weakness of mine. So that was one of the things that as I was being approached by investors, I definitely wanted someone who was very, very strong in that space, knowing that it was a huge weakness of mine. And I think it's also critical that they recognize my strengths and I recognize theirs. And for me, that was how I solved that problem because to be honest, in my mind, that was an unsolvable problem. How do you teach someone to get the right gut feeling in a meeting, whether they should trust somebody? I look at that and I'm like, well, that's not possible. So I go out and find someone who's extremely process-oriented, which my investor happened to be. We did a lot of whiteboarding sessions and he asked a lot of questions about what I was doing. And he pulled a process out of it, which he's now documented and now he is doing. And now we're training other people how to do it. That I think is really key. So when you find unsolvable problems, that is an unsolvable problem by me and me alone. That does not mean it's an unsolvable problem if you put the right team together. And most unsolvable problems can be solved by the right team to think of going to the moon. Even today, if you and I decided, hey, we're going to build a spaceship and go to the moon, like it's been what, 40, I don't know. I don't know how, it's been a long time since people have been to the moon. I'm not sure you and I would get it done unless we had put a team together and it's the team that makes it happen. So I think that's really key if you are, and I think this is really hard for founder types because founders tend to be very creative and they want to create and build everything, but you can't hold on to it forever. You have to be willing to let it go and let it, evolve into something that's scalable. Most founders start companies because they figured out a better way to solve a problem or serve a need. Not because they love tracking payroll, filling out compliance forms, and explaining employee benefits packages. And yet, all that stuff still has to be done. That's why there's Fullstack PEO. Fullstack PEO specializes in turnkey HR for emerging companies. Not just those core services, but advice and expertise that helps founders maximize employee potential. Curious? Find more at fullstackpeo.com. When you step back and you think of competitors to iTeam, who and what comes to mind? You can name companies you don't necessarily need to, but in terms of when you're trying to think about differentiating yourself and or fighting for that finite resource, which is a CEO's time sure. and energy, how do you think about that landscape? Well, indirect competitors, it is everything on a CEO's plate. Direct competitors, I would kind of think of YPO and Vistage is probably the two most famous. And we are honestly kind of a hybrid of the two, where what I really liked about Vistage was the small groups. They don't have CEOs only, but it's small groups of executives coming together to help each other out. And it builds that tribe of trust, but they keep it really small. And then YPO is this huge global network. They call it a young president's organization. You have to be a CEO or a president to be in YPO. And I think your company has to be a $15 million company or something like that. Maybe it's 10, but it's more the network where they might get together as peers. I think they even do that, get together for peer groups, but it's self-led. And what I love from Vistage was the facilitator, I think brings a lot of value where if if you're going to ask for a CEO's time, you want to make it as valuable as possible. But then the network opens up a lot more opportunities for learning. And I think that combination is really key to what we're doing. What makes a good facilitator? A good facilitator, there's facilitating in general, and then there's facilitating for iTeam, and they're going to be different because part of a great facilitator for iTeam is you have to understand business to a pretty high level of, and you don't have to know everything about, like you don't have to know 
how a marketing stack works, but you have to know what marketing stacks are and what some of the options generally are and philosophically why you need one. And so if you go all in on Microsoft, what some of the weaknesses might be versus going in on Google, right? Or whatever it is, or PPC versus Facebook. I think it's important to know that. And that's just one example, a really broad array of different experiences your CEOs are gonna be going through. And you have to be able to understand a general overlay of what that train looks like so you can see now, you don't have to get in the weeds and know how to mow every yard, but you need to be in the airplane where you can see that there are yards, that there's roads, that there's farms, and that it all interrelates. Yeah. To facilitate like a, a community group or a volunteer meeting or a group of uh, team members inside a company, I think is very different because you can facilitate inside a company. You could be facilitating a team that reports to the CFO. And you're going to be generally, so long as you're knowledgeable about finance, you're going to be pretty good there. You don't need to be knowledgeable about every aspect of the business. And a lot of that's much more personal growth where you might be helping that group. Maybe it's a conflict management issue. There's a lot of different ways to facilitate or a lot of different types of things you can facilitate. The key thing for a facilitator compared to a consultant or a coach or a trainer is that a facilitator is going to pull the answers out of the group and leverage the group's joint wisdom in order to create that whole, the sum is greater than the parts. And I think a good facilitator finds that sum, not just the parts. So when you think of differentiation between those two, from a positioning perspective, how do you present that to a prospect? We don't, unless it comes up, honestly. And I think for every business, you have to approach the market in a B2B business. Typically it's, do they already understand the product? Do we have to educate them on the product? And do we have to help differentiate? So someone who has no understanding, if you might educate them on your product, and that might be enough. You don't need differentiation because if they haven't yet researched, they aren't looking at options, they're only looking at you. And I think that's very common for a lot of startup companies. If you have something that's honestly, whether it's unique or not, you can still come across as unique. Do you have a feel for what percentage of your CEOs, this is their first think tank? they've ever been a part of? It's a great question. Maybe I should do that survey because I would like to have that information, but I haven't done it. Anecdotally, had people mention, I have no sense of what percentage has or hasn't. I mean, it's between 10 and 90%. Honestly, <laughs> I mean, I know that's so broad, but I'm like, well, I've had like several mention it, but beyond that, all right, I really don't have much feel for it. I'm I should get a feel for that. It's a pretty good question. Particularly if you understand that for the people who are members today mm -hmm. and assuming they're good, that could also be an indicator for where you should fish. Like, oh, it turns out most of our great members, this is their first one. So generally, when you think about differentiation, most startups, they're creating a business that is just like everybody else, but slight, but different. So it's just like, if you wanna create a hit Hollywood film, you have to be derivative with a twist. So it has to be exactly like everything else, but somehow totally different. And that's really the key to a great hit film. And I think it's the same key to most startup businesses. And that's different than having a whiz-bang technology that no one else has. And I'll cover that in a second. So if you don't have a whiz-bang technology or some sort of thing that nobody can recreate most businesses or service businesses, you're going to start an accounting firm or you're going to be a lifestyle coach or you're going to start a new delivery service. And those are services that most of, you know, are a new pizza place, right? There's lots of pizza places. So how do you differentiate? And you have to be similar enough to pizza that you can market it and people know that, oh, I'm in the mood for pizza. So you're on the list, but then different enough that they pick you instead of Domino's or whoever else. Yeah. And so my first career was in the music business where you are exactly like everybody else and somehow have to look totally unique. 
I learned a lot there of how you come across as totally unique when you really are, I'm unique, just like everybody else, right? And that's really what a musician <laughs> is. And it's a career where literally anywhere you go in the country within a two mile radius, there are hundreds of people who would love to come do the same job for free. And so you somehow have to figure out how to get paid in an extremely competitive environment where you have very little unique qualities. And so a lot of it goes to, in the music business, it goes to personal branding and building some sort of differentiated hook that, oh, I know what that is, but it's different. I've never seen it before. And so I think for a lot of founders out there, if you're creating a business that is a twist on something already out there, you really have to lean into the twist. demonstrate what it is you're doing that's different. A lot of that's probably going to come back to core values, purpose of the company. Like it's very easy for someone to emulate our business, but it'd be very difficult for them to emulate our core values and our purpose because those align with a deep core philosophical belief. And I think that's really critical. Now I'll contrast that with if you're a technology company and you build a new type of software and you're the first to market then you can explode because you have intellectual property or you have a software code base that is going to take someone else 18 months to get started and to get the traction and everything. So I think you have a lot more opportunity to differentiate in those space. It's no accident that we just filed a provisional patent because I think technology will differentiate us more faster and give us more opportunity to attract investment dollars in order to grow rapidly. We're very excited about it. It's also important that that technology, to me, that that technology fulfills the core purpose and philosophy behind the business, which is the whole purpose of it. What's the purpose? I see a world where every great culture starts with a great economy. If you go all the way back to ancient Egypt, modern New York City, the places we think of as great art centers, ancient Greece, ancient Shanghai, like we've seen it all over the world. They started with great economies and then use that economy to build incredible cultural experiences that are still remembered thousands of years later. And that honestly is the goal, is how do we help CEOs build economic opportunities? And I think those economic opportunities are available to their team members, to the public, and to their customers. At the same time, what are we gonna do with it? There's a question of purpose that we talk about in iTeam, and what's the purpose of the business beyond just growth? And that I think is how we improve culture, improve society and improve access to new, like what's the next New York City? What's the next ancient Egypt? Not that we'll be around to see, but it's very exciting to see those things developing and evolving. I've never thought of New York City as Greece. That's interesting. It's not just location. So it's not just making a great city. We can have a business that builds incredible culture. Like I've met a lot of people from Eli Lilly. It's amazing when I meet people from Eli Lilly, when I network with them or have been mentored or some I have mentored and some I've been mentored by and others I've just been friends with and networking as they've left Eli Lilly to start businesses. When they communicate, there is a style to it that's very impressive. They tend to have extremely strong EQ. Their emails even, when I watch an introduction from someone from Eli Lilly introduce me to somebody else, the email introduction will ask about their interests, their kids, like, and it's only two or three sentences at the beginning of the email, but they remember stuff about each other and they care about the person, not just the business opportunity. And so when I see those introductions go out, I've noticed there's a real thoughtfulness and having conversations with them, I've noticed that same thoughtfulness and the way they communicate with me and when we're in a group. And I think that there's a core culture I'm suspecting. I haven't worked in Eli Lilly, but I'm guessing that there's a culture there that attracts and demands that and creates it because I've seen it so many times in expats, people who've left and people who are still there, honestly. 
I think that's kind of a cool thing that improving someone's communication style to be more congenial and more friendly in a world that's really soundbite oriented where people fire texts off without really caring about how it makes somebody else feel. Even a company that's just a huge company headquartered in a town can still have an impact on that community. And I mean, if you look at the Lilly Endowment, like there's a tremendous impact that's possible, right? So every, almost every county in Indiana, if not every county has a county foundation now or and a community foundation, Eli Lilly's endowment put that in place. And not every CEO and I team is gonna create Eli Lilly, obviously. I'd be excited if just one creates Eli Lilly. At the same time, I think we're all capable of that. Whether we're CEOs or not, we're all capable of creating something different with our friends, with our communities, with our neighbors, with our own kids, if we have any. And I think that's an exciting prospect. You've been running iTeam for how long? Four years. In the last four years, what's the most impressive kind of story, soundbite thing that you've seen that has made you step back and kind of do what you just did? Like, wow, me and the team are a small part of of making that happen. Some CEOs who are growing incredibly rapidly and others who, for instance, we have CEOs who run manufacturing facilities. No manufacturer in today's environment, or I shouldn't say no, but very rare that they're going to have 100% growth in any year, much less year-over-year growth. But we also have technology companies who are doing 100% month-over-month growth. So I don't think it's just rate of growth. And it is exciting to see, like, we have one IT member who joined and was at a $50 million valuation, is now raising money at, like, I don't know, it's over a half million dollar valuation and will probably be at a billion soon. We have others who have gone- Over half billion. It's over half billion now and will be over a billion soon, yeah. yeah. We've seen people go from, in as short as 18 months, go from like two employees to 190. Saw another go from one market to 22 markets in 16 months. That's amazing. To have them come and be part of those conversations and listen to what they're going through and how can we help them get connections and be connected to the right person to get the piece of advice. For instance, one of those came back and said, I am so busy. I'm so overloaded. We're growing so fast. Like it's something, it's a new crisis every single day. And when I need something, I need exactly the piece of information I need and nothing more. And I need it right now. That's what I value about iTeam because I can make one call, get one connection. And, you know, within two brief phone calls, I either have the answer or at least I have some foresight into a couple of the different strategies I'm thinking about shifting to and what impacts that might create. I think that's tremendously valuable. But to back up and look at a manufacturing CEO who's never gonna hit that kind of growth, but to see them really buckle down and crunch it and in an industry average growth rate of 8% and for them to be doing 22% year over year growth as a result of coming to iTeam and thinking more strategically about which parts of the business they cut, which parts they invest in, you know, do they launch a new product line? Do they turn off a product line that's breaking even, but taking time away from the executive team and, right. and being able to evaluate all that, which dominoes do you knock over next really is what it's all about. And the tricky thing about dominoes is you have to really think it through before you start knocking them over. Let's do the inverse of that question. The most horrifying thing you've heard in the, or seen in the last four years. The most horrifying. One of the things I've learned about CEOs is you don't get to pick which crisis you deal with. You deal with the one that happens. And I don't know if I can say any one thing is more horrifying than another, but I've seen CEOs and been in many decisions and conversations that appear impossible. And yet as a CEO, you have to make a choice 
and move on regardless. I've had CEOs call me before they fire their father, before they fire siblings. I've also seen the other where they, right before they hire them. And being able to create those conversations of, you know, before you make that move, why don't you have this conversation with this other CEO who just fired their brother and get their viewpoint before you really think about hiring family. And uh, on the other hand, you should also talk to this other CEO who hired their sister and it's been an amazing experience and they've grown very rapidly as a result of the core trust that's built inside there. I think being able to get both sides of the coin is really critical. That I think is the key of what we do that's different than a one-on-one coach because a one-on-one coach, it's very difficult to provide all those multiple perspectives. And I think for a CEO, it's very important to see multiple perspectives before you make a decision. It's very easy to create false dichotomies. We all think it's this or that, but it's never a this or that. It's always this or that, or that, or that, or that, or that. There's always a plethora of options. How do you cultivate, curate the ability to step back and be able to recognize that all of those options are there. Oftentimes when a problem is presented, it's presented in a way that makes it feel finite, not infinite. And so how do you train yourself to be able to recognize other conversations I could have? There's other points of view. There's these options that are presented to me are not the only options. I think the key, if you want to train yourself to see other points of view, the first step is training yourself to see other points of view. Like I remember my degrees in philosophy and I had one class that was very pragmatic, like current issues philosophy, which is unusual. Most of it's like Heraclitus, like you can never step in the same river twice. If you really think about what that, what he really means when he says that, right? It's always the same river, but it's never the same river. And I think the Buddha talked about when you take one candle and use it to light another candle, now they're the same flame, but at the same time, different flames. And being able to see that we create false dichotomies, that nothing is really totally separate or totally together. A, I would say, think about reading books by people who don't have the same beliefs as you and take the time to really understand why they have that belief instead of just documenting they have this belief and here's why I don't agree with it. I had a class where we had, the professor spent time and she had us list out a lot of current issues like gay rights, abortion, a lot of really hot button issues. And we had to put on paper what we believed. And it was a trick because then the assignment was we had to go write a paper supporting the other side. So everybody in the class, no matter where they were on these hot button issues, we had to go write papers for each of those issues supporting the other side. That was a very hard exercise, but also a very, very powerful one. Because in that exercise, I learned that there is nothing infallible in my own beliefs and that everybody else's are in many ways equally valid and just come from different experience points. And even if we have the same experiences, there's different points of view that will create a very different experience. So one example I was just reading about this morning with, I think after the George Floyd murder, there's been a lot more comfort in black friends of mine expressing their actual opinions and beliefs. And a friend of mine the other day was talking about, we don't go to Auschwitz to get our wedding photos taken. Like why are people going to Southern plantations and standing in front of these places to do wedding photos? And it's because the story's been whitewashed. And so in New Orleans, just outside New Orleans, it is to open a new plantation that actually tells the story from the slave's point of view, which creates a very different plantation tour. And in the same plantation, and there are two versions of truth. 
And the truth is created by perception, not created by what actually happened. And I think there, it's really important to understand all three. What actually happened? What are the different viewpoints? And as CEO, you really need to dig into that because everybody in your team is going to have a different point of view. And your job is to bring them together and to find the ones who can't be brought together. And I think some types of leadership are even more difficult. Politicians have to bring people together and can't exclude anybody. So you can't fire the people who don't agree with your plan for the new sewage system or whatever it is, right? You have to somehow, sometimes you build consensus, sometimes you just get the 51% and go forward. But if you push forward with only 51%, you're probably gonna lose. You really want that 80%. Right. And I think as CEO, you're no one's ever gonna agree with you 100%. But at the same time, you have to help create what's the future going to look like? What is our common benefit of working together on this? And how are we going to get there together? And being able to create that picture and be a kind of a steward of those viewpoints, because I think it's very easy to create a productive point of view that doesn't necessarily create a healthy one in the long run. If folks want to learn more about iTeam or want to get involved, what's the best way for them to do that? Thinkiteam.com. Feel free to email us. That's the primary way. Most people in iTeam, it's sort of an invite experience. We reach out, we invite people when our members think they might be right for it. And um, however, if you have interest or would like to learn more, you're always welcome to reach out. And we, uh, we're always happy to help. If somebody wants to get a hold of you directly, if they want to follow you on social media, what's the best place for them to do that? I wish I did more social media. I am on LinkedIn and Facebook. I will eventually see your message, I promise. <laughs> Connect with me on LinkedIn. That's probably the best place. Awesome. That is, thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Mike. Great time. Startup Competitors provides monthly handcrafted email updates on your top competitors. Keep up to date on new hires, marketing activities, events, awards, new product launches, pricing changes, funding, and a bunch more. Learn more at startupcompetitors.com. Startup Competitors.